Good morning. It's Tuesday, the 20th of June, and I'm Govindraj Ethiraj coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital. Our top reports for the day Indigo Airlines orders 500 A320 Airbus aircraft, making it the single biggest purchase agreement in the history of aviation. Big companies to small India's flailing governance standards. Electric two-wheeler companies face a reckoning after subsidies get slashed and sales drop. Shipping and logistics giant Maersk, known for sea cargo transport, wants to work with small businesses in India. This is a core report with Govindraj Ethiraj. And the big aviation deal and the top story, Indigo, which made news for taking an over 61% market share last month, has placed a firm order for 500 A320 family Airbus aircraft in a roughly $50 billion deal, making it the biggest single purchase agreement in the history of commercial aviation. Now, the $50 billion price tag is approximate because it's a list price and that may or may not apply to this particular transaction. Now, this agreement takes the total number of Airbus aircraft on order by Indigo to 1,330, also making it the world's biggest A320 family customer, Airbus said in an official release last night. Indigo presently has only 300 aircraft and has previous orders totaling 480 aircraft expected to be delivered in the next seven years. The 500 aircraft deal signed yesterday beats Air India's 470 aircraft deal, which was also surrounded with much fanfare, but was mixed in favor of both Airbus and Boeing. Now, to put all of this in a little bit of context, India as a country has a total fleet of around 684 aircraft, of which, by the way, 130 are presently grounded. And yet, the month of May was a blowout month for domestic air travel. This landmark order marks a new chapter in Airbus and Indigo's relationship that is democratizing affordable air travel for millions of people in the world's fastest growing aviation market. It is also a resounding endorsement of the A320 family's best in class operating economics that have been powering Indigo's growth for almost two decades. Christian Scherer, chief commercial officer and head of international at Airbus said, Now, Indigo placed its first order with Airbus in 2005 for 100 aircraft for the A320 family. Airbus says the A320 aircraft has the widest single aisle cabin in the sky that incorporates enhanced aerodynamics and the latest generation jet engines with significant reductions in fuel consumption and lower emissions. Indigo operates over 1800 daily flights and connects 78 domestic destinations. and is poised to go to 32 international destinations well now with thousands quite literally of new aircraft one just hopes that fights for parking slots at airports will not turn into the kind of battles we see for car parking slots in the by lanes of south mumbai or even the colonies of south delhi sales of electric two wheelers fall as prices rise Prices of electric two-wheelers went up by anywhere between 10 to 40,000 rupees as the government reduced subsidies to manufacturers from the 1st of June. 
Possibly because of this sudden hike, average daily sales volumes of electric two-wheelers have declined over 62% from May from around 3,395 units per day to about 1,271 units per day in the first week of June, the Business Standard newspaper reported. Now, electric two-wheelers are a small portion of overall two-wheeler sales at about 7.7% of the 1.5 or close to 1.5 million units dispatched in May. Obviously, for June, that proportion would be lower. Now, there could be several reasons for this, but some questions are worth asking. For instance, were consumers largely attracted by the price of electric two-wheelers? To what extent were electric two-wheelers cannibalizing on petrol or were they carving out a fresh space? And finally, what's the near-term outlook like for electric two-wheelers given all this, specifically and strategically, given its importance in contributing to reducing fossil fuel use and the carbon footprint? I reached out to Nikunj Sanghi, former president of the Federation of Auto Dealers of India and presently a dealer with various auto brands. I think the reason why they've gone down is not just because the prices have increased. There were a lot of pre-sales which happened in the last week of May. And I think even the manufacturers were very clear and they were informing all their dealers that whoever wants to pick up the vehicles now before the price increase, please do so. And uh, therefore, if we saw a spike in uh, retail in the last week of May, and as a result of which May as a whole for two-wheelers did much better than the average retail that happens in May. So pre-buying combined with the increase in prices post the revision of FAME scheme is seeing the numbers go down. Right. Now, the price difference is quite sharp, as in it could be anywhere between 10 to 40,000 rupees in each of these scooters. What's your sense in terms of the price change in the context of the absolute price? I mean, if it's an 80,000 rupee uh, scooter and the price goes up by, let's say, 20,000, then it's a sharp rise. Uh, that's one part. Secondly, what is your sense about how customers are looking at electric two-wheelers? As in, are they okay to pay 20%? At 30% do they stop? Or at 40%, do they say complete no? What's your sense? One, the increase is definitely very, very sharp. And specifically in automobiles, whether it is EV or even an IC, wherever there is a price increase and when there is a substantial price increase, you definitely see resistance to the increased price. So whenever there is a price increase, you will suddenly see a drop down in for the customers and specifically the customers who are in a pipeline. So if I am an intending customer and I walk into a showroom and I get a quotation for an X price and I go back and I find suddenly the prices have increased, I will have a huge resistance and I might even drop my decision to buy a vehicle. But people who come into the showroom and take a quotation at the new price, then they are mentally prepared that this is the price band that I'm talking about. And for them, the price increase is more acceptable than people who are already in the pipeline. So I think this gap of not buying a vehicle will definitely happen, even if it was not such a sharp price increase. And with a, such a sharp price increase, obviously, the gap is huge. Your second question, whether uh, how people are looking at uh, two-wheelers, according to me, two-wheelers are definitely the low-hanging fruit when it comes to EV. And uh, I think if you look at the TCO, the total cost of operation of an electric two-wheeler, then buying a two-wheeler, even with the price increase, is an attractive proposition. And why I call it an attractive proposition is that the target customer, and I am talking of the bottom of the pyramid, people who are making entry into two-wheelers. I think those are the people who 
have a problem on both the cost of acquisition of the vehicle, initial cost and the operational cost. Now here what the customer finds is that the operational cost is less than 10% of an IC engine, which becomes an extremely attractive proposition. As far as cost of acquisition is concerned, the increase in EMI, and now most vehicles are sold even EVs, two-wheelers. Fortunately, financiers have opened up to financing two-wheelers. There, the EMI is a marginal increase. So in this case, if it goes from 80,000 to probably a lakh of rupees, the increase in EMI would be around 400 rupees per month, which is affordable. But what he actually gains is, my understanding this is that anybody who's owning an entry-level two-wheeler, his average monthly expenditure on fuel is anywhere from uh, 2,500 rupees to about 4,000 rupees a month. When it comes to electricity or when it comes to charging his vehicle, this amount drops down to less than 500 rupees a month. And in case of rural areas, and I think that's why we are finding a huge penetration in rural areas, it's zero cost to the consumer because electricity to rural customers is free in most of the states. So then it really becomes an extremely attractive proposition. And therefore, an EV two-wheeler will not go out of the consideration set of an intending consumer based on the increase in the initial cost of acquisition. Right. And I'll come back to that in a second. But you're saying that uh, electricity for use for even things like charging a two-wheeler or basically not for, let's say, agriculture is free in many places? Yeah. So actually, you have only one connection. If you buy an EV, you don't have to take a separate connection to charge your EV. There is no way the government records what are you using your electricity for. So if in rural areas it is free, it is free. And on the lighter side, quite a few times, most of it is theft. So in rural areas, they normally put in a jumper on the electricity lines and start using electricity, which in any case is free for them. So this enlightenment came to me when I started talking. So I don't know if you're aware, I'm a hero dealer in Alwar and I sell about 2000 vehicles for them every month. So when we saw a drop in our retails and I started asking my consumer, why are you not buying? Being in Alwar, I think 80% of my customer is rural. So they said, sir, for us, electricity is free. And it makes sense. So even if the vehicle is expensive, initial cost, as a good salesman, I even said that you're not accounting for replacement of battery within three years. And that's a substantial cost. He says, by then we would have recovered the cost of the entire vehicle. So we don't mind uh, this initial cost of acquisition. As you look ahead, next three to six months, so the price hike, uh, assuming the government will not further pull back its incentives, and prices remain roughly as where they are. Do you see then, therefore, electric two-wheelers maybe climbing back and climbing more sharply to its original trajectory? Climbing back, definitely. Uh, the growth will be slow because uh, for two reasons. One, because like I told you, the price increase is very, very sharp for the customer to accept the new price band will take some time. Two, even for financiers to rework their finance schemes because uh, they were reluctant to come in for EVs. They are now on board doing EVs, but they will have to have a rethink because for them, since more than half the price of the vehicle is just the battery cost. And if the battery is decaying or if the battery goes, recovery becomes more difficult. Therefore, the resistance. So I guess they will need to rework their plans in terms of financing EV two-wheelers. So that will take some time, but I am more than confident that the trajectory towards the original numbers will happen. It might take some time, but it will happen. 
The government cut back subsidies because it found that some electric two-wheeler companies had played fast and loose with those subsidies and started importing stuff while they claimed they were manufacturing locally. So now should Indian auto, in this case two-wheelers or electric two-wheelers, learn to live without subsidies? I posed this question to Nikunj Sanghi as well. In any case, I think government had its reason for doing what it did. But EVs definitely do require government support. And I think that's been the international experience, global experience of even the developed countries. So the support will need to come. The government will need to have a rethink on the fame scheme after they feel that the industry has been disciplined to the extent that they wanted it to get disciplined. But without government support, developing an EV ecosystem is not going to be easy. Right. Uh, Sangi, thank you so much for joining me. Why does India lag in corporate governance? Governance news, which is not good on a good day. The victims, if you want to call them that, can be large and small. Let's start with the large ones. Z Entertainment's Managing Director and CEO Puneet Goenka and Chairman Subhash Chandra are battling an order from the Securities and Exchange Board of India, which bars them from holding the position of a director or key managerial personnel in any listed company. At this point, the Securities Appellate Tribunal, or SAT, in its hearing yesterday on this matter, said that it will hear this now on the 26th of June. Now, let's go back to the original charge, which was that a sum of 200 crore rupees that was to have been paid back by the Chandra, Goenka and the seven private companies to Z, the listed company, actually had not been paid back. Rather, money belonging to Z first went out and then came back after transiting through several other entities as if Chandra and Goenka had repaid the sum, thus making it seem that the entries were just book entries and suggesting that the money was merely rotated and not repaid. The decision by SEBI casts a long shadow over an imminent merger between Z Entertainment and Sony Pictures India, which in itself has been moving slowly for various reasons. Z, in a letter to the markets regulator SEBI, has said that continuous and repetitive investigations on the same cause of action creates prejudice for the company and shareholders and can potentially impact the merger process. Now let's pick up another example. Bloomberg columnist Andy Mukherjee yesterday wrote a lengthy column on the Adani Group which has faced considerable flack, as you know, in the well-known Hindenburg Report, mostly relating once again to governance issues and disclosures. Mukherjee writes that the group should have been more forthcoming about doing business with a legal firm, Cyril Amarchand Mangaldas or CEM, where Paridi Adani, the chairman's daughter-in-law, is a partner and is also the daughter of CAM's managing partner, Cyril Shroff. The firm and Paridi Adani were also involved in the Adani Group's mega-acquisition last year of Holcim Limited's cement business in India. But perhaps more significant than that, on her law firm's website, she advertises her involvement in mergers and acquisitions activity while the group hasn't made any disclosures that show her or her law firm as a related party or describe the deals as related party transactions. Now, Mukherjee quotes three specific transactions and examples quoted by the law firm's website. Rani Ports and Special Economic Zones acquisition of 75% of Krishnapatnam Ports that closed in October 2020 Adani Green Energy's solar joint venture with Total Energies that kicked off in the same year, and the French energy giant taking a 37.4% stake in the firm now known as Adani Total Gas in February 2020. 
But the annual reports of Adani Ports, Adani Green Energy and Adani Total Gas or its predecessor Adani Gas have made no mention of utilizing the services of a law firm where a close family member is a partner. Now, to be clear, the lawyer and her firm are under no obligation to report their association to the market regulator. I would add, the issue here is purely disclosure. Most large businesses would actually want to work with CAM's firm for their transactions on pure merit. So unlike the evidently unusual audit firm Shah and Dandaria, who the flagship company Adani Enterprises worked with, CAM definitely has pedigree. But that was not the case here, disclosure of interest and relationship was. The audit firm, who has now resigned, by the way, had four partners and 11 employees and worked out of a small office paying a monthly rent of 32,000 rupees in 2021, pointed out, by the way, by Hindenburg Research. And finally, the small, if you want to call them that. Investors in Mojo Care, a healthcare product and service startup that raised about $20 million, led by the B Capital Group, a venture capital firm set up by Facebook co-founder Yudardo Saverin, said last Sunday they had initiated a forensic audit of the company's financial statements. Peak XV or Peak 15, previously Sequoia India, had backed MojoCare through its seed stage program surge. A majority of MojoCare investors initiated a review of the company's financial statements. While the analysis remains ongoing, initial findings have uncovered financial irregularities and it has become apparent that the business model is not sustainable due to a variety of operational and market factors. The statement said. Now, Mojo Care joins the likes of Bharat Pay, Zilingo, Trell, Go Mechanic, and Rahul Yadav's 4B networks, all of which were found to have lapses in their financial reporting over the past year. Now, governance in India is a problem, arguably like many other markets in the world. A look at the massive crypto failures in the United States in recent months of companies brought down by fraud rather than by failing businesses tells you that this is a global problem. But India is a little different and has traveled governance issues right through liberalizations in the context of stock markets opening up to investors from all over the world and the equity cult expanding through the 90s. Legendary investor Mark Mobius has told me on several occasions, beginning as far back as two decades ago, and more recently that all other factors constant, he preferred companies with good corporate governance. One reason India's IT companies, including Infosys, did well is that they could tout and demonstrate very high governance standards, which in turn fetch them what market folks used to call a governance premium on the bosses. A top fund manager from the Unit Trust of India some years ago told me that fund managers are weighted towards multinational stocks because, among other reasons, they just trust the governance. Now, governance is an all-encompassing word, but it usually means that the accounts are clean and money is not flowing back and forth between the promoters and the company or out to related parties, particularly when these entities are there. At the peak of the Hindenburg research saga, which at one point saw the Adani Group lose over $140 billion in market capitalization, almost all mutual funds took pains to point out that they did not ever own or barely owned any Adani stock. And this was true. Smart investors seem to understand or intuitively know which companies are better governed and managed, at least in public markets. Though admittedly, they too can get blindsided. But in the case of Mojo Care and all these other companies, it is not clear whether the investors were not smart to see it coming or the smartness was not even a factor in consideration because the temptation of seeing the train leave the station without them was just too much. Either way, in all these cases, India's market reputation has suffered again and will only make institutional investors, particularly in public markets, more careful. The opportunities for growth are many. 
but finding the right companies and entrepreneurs to exploit these opportunities may not be. That's unfortunately the sad takeaway. From high sea containers to India's dusty roads, say Musk, and the picture that comes to mind is of a giant cargo ship stacked with containers sailing in the high seas, mostly doing a long trans-Pacific haul. But the Danish shipping and logistics giant is attempting something different in India, almost on the opposite end of the spectrum, actually. The more than a century-old Copenhagen headquartered company is targeting small and medium businesses selling online in India with a single window access to an entire logistics ecosystem, including e-commerce platform integration, warehousing, and countrywide distribution, all for the price of $1 or around 80 rupees per order. A small business, for instance, will have to deliver its goods to a warehouse, after which the e-commerce platform would take over. Musk says it will take care of this part and everything subsequently as well. Now, Musk is betting on both the growth of e-commerce in India as well as the rise and prominence of direct-to-consumer brands who need more customized solutions than what is on offer. Musk is promising 60 days of storage delivery across India covering 18,000 PIN codes in 48 hours, 20% returns to origin at no fixed monthly costs and no minimum orders. To understand why and how Maersk was venturing into this space, both specifically and strategically, I spoke with Vikash Agarwal, the company's India Managing Director, and began by asking him how this solution would roll out. Actually, today, small and medium-sized brands and business are selling through their e-commerce websites are growing rapidly in India today. The current market size for D2C business is around $12 billion and is expected to grow at a rate of 40% per year. And it's expected to reach around $60 billion in the next five years. So the growth is expected to be exponential, but the complexity in the supply chain are becoming a hurdle for most of these D2C customers, which are MSME in nature. In a typical case, a brand selling through his own e-commerce websites would have to deal with a number of vendors to solve all the supply chains and logistic requirements such as warehousing, distribution, the last mile delivery, along with written management. So each of this vendor would build the brand separately and all those costs would get added up. As against that, what Merce will do now is that we will integrate the brand's e-commerce system, provide storage and do the last mile delivery all through a single solution at a flat rate of INR 80 rupees per order, that is per order up to 500 grams and deliver across India to 18,000 pin codes within 48 hours. This way, such brands can focus on the business and leave all the supply chain complexity to us at a simple flat rate. What we have done is we have established a solid network of warehouse and distribution vehicles that will be deployed for this product to help this D2C customers now. You are therefore offering a, a physical service as well as a software box, sort of a solution in a box. Is that correct? Yes. I mean, so it's all packaged as one. So essentially for a client, they don't have to deal with anything other than coming to us and asking for a supply chain to be managed for them. So essentially, they don't have to do anything other than sign a contract to say, this is what we want to do. You know, the examples that people often use, you know, can a brass seller in Moradabad dial into your system and then set it up? And will it be as easy as it sounds right now? So it is almost like plug and play kind of thing. They don't have to think about what technology is going to get deployed. Where are you going to store it? what ecosystems, what API, EDI, through multiple channels, 
So the client may have a marketplace or through their own e-commerce side. So everything we take care of that. The whole ecosystem on the IT side, the whole ecosystem of this application, the physical storage, the physical distribution, and also the written management also. So it is almost like plug and play that they can come to us and they can start shipping from day one. And this is different for uh, Musk, as in this is not what one would associate you with globally. Globally, you're a giant who does shipping and logistics and more shipping than logistics, at least from a brand uh, recall point of view. So how did this transition happen? So Musk has traditionally been known as a shipping line involved in the movement of cargo from port to port on the ocean on vessels. This is what we are known for in the past. However, a few years ago, almost five years back, we changed our strategies and decided to become an integrated logistic company. This means that we have been, over the years, building varied solutions and a network of logistics that offer end-to-end logistics solutions to our customers. We are already providing warehousing and landside logistics, such as movement on air freight, custom clearances, supply chain management, and so on. Our integrated logistics solution brings incredible visibility to our customers that give them highly predictable and flexible logistics. This gives them the resilience to adjust to the market demand through a single window access to all logistic requirements. And this is not limited to India, actually. Our integrated logistics strategy is a global strategy, and we are absolutely aligned with it in India, too. So this is not very specific to India. We have been doing this over the past years across the globe. So to extend that example, you could be picking up product from some seller somewhere in India and also be shipping it overseas for a different price, I'm assuming, of course. So this is a phase two. I won't say today's product, what we have launched, it is not covering the international cross-border, but that will be our second phase where we will also take this seller's product across the border to multiple other countries. And that will be our next ambition to take the Indian products across the different part of the world. So what I'm saying today, this is purely meant to be pan-India distribution and fulfillment, but it does not cover the cross-border across the globe. Uh, How long has it taken you to put this together? We have been working on this platform for last one year. Specifically, this idea has been gathered over a period of time while speaking to multiple customers of ours because the large customers have the bandwidth and the capacity to make it happen. What we realize is a lot of the new startup which has come on board in the last two to three years with, uh, with the ecosystem, what we are seeing now, we started to realize a lot of these young startups, which are B2C customers who wants to be directly connected to their customers, they have been facing these challenges. So last six months to eight months where we have started to gain this input from our customers, we have realized their pain areas. And we realized there is a need for them to get one single window solution which takes away the complexity of what they had to manage so that they can really focus on the product and they can focus on their customers. So this has been over a period of last six to eight months where we have been working on this input. Right. So uh, just to bring you back to cross-border, what's your sense on how freight movement is happening right now? Rates are down, as we all know. How are you seeing trade trends from your perspective? So over the last few years, the overall logistics went through a massive disruption given the global pandemic, what we have faced. The lockdown disrupted the supply chain in the beginning with the movement of cargo coming to a complete standstill. Once the lockdown started opening up, the demand for the consumer goods shot up through the roof and the logistic companies really struggled to meet the rapidly changing market behavior. So a lot of Equipment had to be realigned as for the market demand. There was shortage of space on vessels and a lot of congestion and bottlenecks that led to goods not reaching the market. However, since the last year, a lot of that has started normalizing. 
And we are going back to how it was with the supply chain pre-pandemic level. That said, what is important is that we have learned a lot through this period. We now know the importance of resilient supply chains better than ever. Technology adoption and digitization of supply chain has got accelerated now. And these changes have led to much more efficient logistics now. Currently, we are seeing the overall demand in the Midwestern market has softened. However, as we progress through the latter part of the year, we will see the inventory restocking starting back again, and the demands for goods will go up. We are confident that there is a bright future for global trade, and Merce is ready to play its role while growing along with our customers now. Right. Uh, Vikash, thank you so much for joining us. Well, there you are from high seas to India's dusty roads. That's it from me for this news-packed Tuesday morning. See you tomorrow at the same time. Have a great day and do share this podcast with your friends and family. And do also feedback to me on govindraj at thecore.in. Thank you. This was The Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in. That is www.thecore.in. Or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at the core.in. Thank you for listening.